This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Hey, remember the last time a Democrat won the presidency? It was a guy named Barack Obama. Well, I'm not talking to him this week, but I am talking to his former campaign manager, David Plouffe. I'm Jesse O'Poyan, and this is Wedge Issues, a Cap Times podcast about state government and politics in Wisconsin. David Plouffe just released a new book called A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. He's also got a kid's version called Ripples of Hope, Your Guide to Electing a New President. And he'll be in Madison on March 11th to give a talk about it. The book is all about the things, big and small, that each individual person can do if defeating Donald Trump is something that they'd like to see happen in 2020. David and I talked about his ideas and particularly what they mean for voters in Wisconsin. Now, this was a phone interview, so the sound quality will not be quite what you're used to, but I think it's still absolutely worth a listen. Stay tuned. You'll be in, in Madison pretty soon. Have you have you been here before? Oh yes, I have many times. <laughs> uh, I figured. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's um, always huh. uh, a great place to spend some time and get some good food and maybe a beer. <laughs> yes, we are definitely good for that. Uh, well, so your your book is all about beating Donald Trump. So it sounds like there's some optimism baked in there. Um, how much faith do you have that that can really happen? Well, I wrote the book in part just because I believe it is going to be a tough and close election. Uh, and so a really important message of the book is, since it will likely be close, everybody's individual involvement can make an enormous difference. And so as you probably, if you, if you spend time with the book, I spend, you know, quite a bit of time breaking down why that is, because I think one of the barriers to activism is people not fully understanding how their own individual efforts make a difference. You know, if you register two voters or maybe convince one person in an afternoon to switch their vote, that doesn't sound like much. But when you're joined by thousands of others, that can make the difference. And so, um, you know, the spirit of the book to me is more important than even the specifics, which is everybody's got to take some ownership of this campaign um, because it is going to be close. Trump's got some built in advantages of money and time and incumbency and the Russians and all the other things that may help him. So um, there is no magical cavalry. The cavalry is us, which can be a scary thought. But I, I want everybody to kind of look in the mirror and, and accept that responsibility. And you, you mentioned in the book that you really wanted to get this out, ideally even before there is a Democratic nominee, uh, because you said it, it really isn't about the candidate. It's about the, the people involved. So why why is that? Why does it really not matter who ends up getting the nomination as long as you're you're talking to the people on the ground? Well, of course, who we nominate is important. You know, are they a strong candidate? You know, are they not? <laughs> sure, sure, uh, yeah. People in Wisconsin and elsewhere have strong passions for the primary. So my point is, the only way to get rid of Trump is for all of us to support the eventual nominee. And that may be our favorite, and it may not be our favorite. But um, I wanted to get this book out now just because as people are very focused on the primary, um, particularly as states vote, 
and you know most of the country by the end of March will have voted, um, people say, okay, that's over. Maybe my candidate won. Maybe they didn't. But what is my plan for the general election? Um, you know, can I spend time in battleground states? If I live in Wisconsin, can I be a volunteer <laughs> leader? Um, you know, uh, how am I going to use social media? Um, you know, am I going to ask how can I recruit other people in my network, family and friends, to get involved? So. So we can't wait. Like if we all start thinking about this in August or September, it's going to be too late. Is it unhelpful then or, or too much of a distraction to get bogged down in, in the debate over who is the best candidate? It seems like sometimes it's, we, we spend so much time just talking about who it is and, and not enough talking about time talking about what happens regardless of who that is. Well, no, I mean, this is this is what we have to go through, which is, you know, this mm-hmm. is the semifinals and who is going to end up facing Trump. And so... You know, I would rather us know who our nominee is by, um, you know, April, let's say, than July. Um, but we all need to be ready um, to figure out what is it that we can bring to this campaign um, beyond anything we've done before. And, you know, my the most important audience for my book, from my standpoint, is people who have either not been involved in politics, might have donated and not done and not volunteered. But I do hope people who've been involved in politics a long time may, you know, pick up an additional idea or two, uh, because that's what it's going to take. Um, because I always remind people, if it's, you know, think about what you're going to feel like if he strides out um, in some horrible Trump hotel ballroom, uh, you know, on November 4th, 2020, at about, you know, midnight Eastern time or 1 a.m., you know, the next morning, and he accepts his re-election victory. Uh, and I guarantee you, we'll all look in the mirror and think about what we could have done differently or what we could have done more. And that's, you know, really important part of the book is you're not the candidate. You're not the candidate's campaign manager. You're not the media. So there are people who have a lot of influence in this, but what can you control? And all you can control is your own effort and the creativity and time you put into helping our nominee. And so, um, I think a lot of times we can get paralyzed because, you know, we think our candidate had a bad day or we see something we don't like on social media, but we just got to stick with it each and every day. What are we doing to help further the cause of getting rid of Trump? You you mentioned election night 2020, and I know you've talked a little bit about what it felt like on election night 2016. And obviously, Wisconsin was kind of <laughs> the the final kick in all of that. Um, how long did it did it take you to start feeling motivated as opposed to just, you know, escaping from, from that, the despair of, of those results? Well, it took a while. I mean, I think, you know, it was an unexpected result. I think, um, I think we all had some hope maybe Trump would govern differently than he campaigned and he hasn't. In Mm -hmm. fact, he's intensified, um, the divisions and the misogyny, um, and, um, the recklessness. And so, but, um, you know, I think, for me, really, you began to see the, the women's marches right as he got inaugurated. You began to see the activism throughout special elections and off your elections in 17, and you saw the remarkable turnout and results in 18. So it gives you confidence. But Trump wasn't on the ballot in 18, so we should all feel enormously proud of the 18 results. But Trump wasn't on the ballot, and what that means is Trump's going to uh, blow turnout through the roof in states like Wisconsin. So the degree of difficulty to win the election is going to be harder than we saw in 18. And so I think um, so far for the duration of Trump's presidency, Democrats have had a lot more good election nights than bad. And that's awesome. 
Um, but it all needs to lead up to the uh, kind of final challenge, which is making him a one-term president. And, um, you know, Trump is uh, more obsessed with re-election than probably all the rest of the presidents who faced re-election combined, which is saying something. Um, he's going to have the full power of his government, all the money, foreign governments, uh, you know, readily accepting or not, you know, uh, embracing lies and disinformation. So this is we've never seen this before. Um, and so that can be, I think, daunting. Uh, but my point in the book is there is no um, adult in the room that's going to face off against Trump. It's all of us. And that can seem lonely. But when you think about um you know, me becomes we and we becomes us, millions and millions of Americans and in Wisconsin, hopefully tens of thousands of people each and every day uh, doing what they can to defeat Trump. That's how we're going to win. Looking at the, the ballot here in Wisconsin uh, in, in 2020, we don't have a Senate seat on the ballot. We don't really have any truly competitive congressional races. How does that factor into presidential efforts for us? Well, I think, you know, each battleground state's different. You know, so in Arizona, we do have a big Senate race, um, you know, in in Wisconsin and uh, Pennsylvania, we don't. In Michigan, we have a Senate race. So I think, you know, the top of the ticket tends to drive a lot of activism, a lot of turnout. And so I think in Wisconsin, you just have to understand it's even going to be a little bit harder. You know, you're not going to have people coming out for a senator governor's race. Now, you will have people coming out for state legislative races and congressional races. But um you know, we really need to, to in each state, understand um, what the uniqueness and complexities are in, in any given year. So, um, you know, in Wisconsin, it really is going to be the presidential race that drives everything. Um, and I, I'm, I'm happy with that because I think there's enough people in Wisconsin who, if we can get them out to the polls, will vote to defeat Trump. But um, you're not going to get help from, you know, a Senate race. You know, Arizona, you may get a little help. Michigan, you may get a little help. You're not going to get that, you know, in Wisconsin. And so, but, you know, I've, I've, you know, helped lead to winning Wisconsin presidential campaigns. The recipe for victory, I think, is pretty clear. Um, you know, you've got to, to register and turn out, you know, folks on campuses and in their cities. You've got to win back some of the Trump Obama voters. You've got to hold on to your suburban gains uh, outside of Madison and Milwaukee. Um, and you've got to do all of it. Like we can't choose to do one of it. And so that's, you know, why in the book I talk about registration and I talk about GTB and I talk about persuasion. And I talk about content because the math is such that if Trump does add a bunch of folks to his pile of voters, and I think that's one thing they are going to do, they're going to find in Wisconsin folks who aren't registered, who didn't turn out to turn out. So his win number grows, you know, um, uh, and so we have to match that. And you can't match that with only one segment of the electorate. Yes, we need to do a better job of turnout in Milwaukee, but we also have to do a better job uh, in blue collar and exurban areas. And we've got to hold his margin down in rural areas and we have to maximize our suburban vote share. We have to do it all. And we hopefully our candidate is great and can help um, accomplish that. And hopefully their campaign uh, is, you know, cutting edge and super smart. But ultimately, a lot of that burden does fall to all of us individual citizens. And, you know, again, that can seem daunting. But when you break it down, uh, kind of down to the precinct level, you know, it can seem manageable.
This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. So much of the advice that you give involves people having conversations with each other. And this is happening sort of at the same time that we're seeing, um, I think, you know, survey after survey that shows that people are more and more reluctant to talk to each other about politics because it's getting so ugly and so difficult. How do you advise people to get past that discomfort and have those productive conversations, especially with people that, you know, they, they may not agree with 100 percent, but they're just trying to, to motivate to, to get involved? Right. I mean, I think you have to basically um, take the leap and know that whether it's digital engagement or in-person engagement, not, you know, 100 percent of those interactions won't be pleasant. But again, in the election, what we're focused on is not hardcore Trump supporters. We're really focused on people who are truly undecided, uh, who are, you know, traditional swing voters or focused on people who may not be registered or people who are registered, uh, but may are saying they may not vote or may be, um, you know, flirting with a third party vote. So, again, I, I want people to be clear. We're not talking about, you know, the 45 percent of the people that are uh, hardcore Trumpers. Um, that's not our focus. <laughs> So by definition, the universes of people you've been talking to, you know, should be more open. Um, and, and uh, you know, it doesn't mean all of them will be polite. But, you know, you're talking to people who, if the campaign has good data, and if you yourself have good sort of intelligence about the types of people in your community, then you know that person is actually saying they may not vote. Well, how do I get them to vote? Or that person saying they may vote third party. Or that person saying, you know what? I don't like Trump's character, but I like, uh, you know, I like how he's handled China. Well, you got to go convince them to vote for our nominee. So it's super important to understand that we're talking about a fairly narrow slice of voters. Um, we're not asking you to go out there and, you know, convince Laura Ingram, uh, <laughs> you know, or, or Ron Johnson or Lindsey Graham to change their mind. Um, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about truly gettable voters. Uh, and those conversations tend to be, you know, both more pleasant and more impactful. Uh, one of the other specific things that you mentioned that intrigued me stood out to me because we've had a number of court battles over the last several election cycles over access to early voting. And it's you know kind of been held up over time. And, and we finally have had a couple of elections where we can see what happens with that. And that's something that you're um, really encouraging people to do. Why is getting the, the early vote out uh, important in, in all of this, too? Well, first of all, you know, if you're talking about voters that are not reliable voters or aren't super sure that they're going to vote, like you want to get that vote in the bank. You don't want to leave it hanging till Election Day. So when you're talking about an early vote, the most important um, evaluation a campaign makes is who's voting early. And if it's it's mostly just reliable voters who you are going to vote on Election Day, um, but in just voting early, that's less. Um, important than people who are not regular voters, right? You want to cash that check as soon as you can. Now, for the rest of us who are reliable voters, let's free ourselves up. Let's get that vote in the bank so that we can help on election day. So, you know, I write about this in a book. If, if you um, could have voted early uh, and don't and have to and vote on election day, you know, you could take an hour out of your time, then you could be reaching voters. So if you can vote early and you tend to be active on election day, around election day, Get that vote in early. And 
if you're dealing with people who may be first-time voters or who aren't regular voters, you want to get that vote in the bank because you want to maximize the early vote of folks who, you know, if something happened on election day, you may lose that vote. So when, you know, when we ran the Obama campaigns, we always really focused less on the raw numbers in terms of early vote, what the composition is. And, you know, you, the campaigns pull data every day to see who's voting and early. Now, you don't know how they cast their ballot, but with good data, you have a sense of that. And was that somebody that you had no worry that, you know, they were no worry to vote for Trump, but the concern was they weren't going to vote. Um, and then they voted early. So you can feel really good about that because that's a vote in the bank that you might have lost on election day. Uh, technology is also something that you mentioned in this conversation in, in the book. Uh, you know, as a journalist, I obviously have a strong interest in, in trying to combat misinformation. Um, but I also find that it's really difficult to, um, I guess, teach or encourage that digital media literacy to people who you know, didn't grow up online or you know, are, are just getting onto Facebook and Twitter and, and learning things from there. What are your ideas for how people can use technology for good and also fight you know, whatever misinformation exists out there? Well, you got to get in the fight. And I know for some people that's hard. Because, you know, the social media wars um, are filled with disinformation and anger. But, you know, whether it's a Facebook account, an Instagram account, Twitter, if you're a younger, uh, you know, voter, it could be Snapchat. Um, use those vehicles to reach people. And that can be you create your own content. You know, one of the examples I use in the book, if you've got a neighbor who voted for Trump in 16, but is now going to vote Democrat, you know, whip out your phone and see if they're OK with you taking a video and post that. Not only will that reach people in your own network, but it's the kind of thing that could go viral. Um, you know, if you see a great interview um, that our nominee does, post that. It doesn't have to be all the negative on Trump. We're fighting disinformation. And I think that's important. You know, post things that make you feel good, that, that motivate you and may motivate others. But also, if you see disinformation, you know, or flat out lie, respond to it. And now I would encourage you then not to get into like a day long back and forth with people. You know, just say, that's absolutely untrue. The Wall Street Journal actually wrote a story on this and said, what you're saying is not true. Um, you know, our nominee is not going to increase taxes by 90 percent, you know, uh, <laughs> and and just fire it out. And it may change nobody's mind in your feed, but other people will see what you did and they may decide to fight back, too. So this is the thing I struggled most with in the book uh, in writing it, which is how much to encourage people to to get involved on these platforms, but that is the, you know, that is the public square these days. This campaign, it will be fought on the streets and it will be fought on debate stages, but the biggest battlefront is our phones. And, you know, all of us that want to see Trump defeated need to do our part. Uh, and again, some of that is playing whack-a-bowl on disinformation and lies, but it's also creating our own content, sharing content that motivates us. Uh, I think in 16, most people on Facebook or Twitter shared anti-Trump sentiment. And I understand that. Like, we couldn't believe somebody like this was running for president, much less competitive. But I, I think we didn't share enough about Hillary Clinton's positive plans. And um, we all need to take, I think, some responsibility to do more of that this time. You've got probably a, a pretty unique insight into the Obama-Trump voters, um, which is obviously a fascinating phenomenon. But how many, I guess, how, what, how significant do you think that portion of the electorate is that may be up for grabs in 2020? And are there 
particular ways to try to appeal to them that might be different from, you know, maybe just your, your average undecided Democratic voter? Well, you know, there's enough of them that they can make the difference. Um, so in a state like Wisconsin, there's a very, I think, harmful debate in the Democratic Party about is it all about turning out base voters or is it about swing voters? And somehow folks suggest you have to make a choice. Simple mathematics suggests you can't make a choice. You have to do enough both to get to enough voters in a state like Wisconsin to beat Trump. So, you know, some of those are going to be folks you want to register, and some of those will be people that are turnout concerns. Some of those people may be suburban voters that, you know, voted for Clinton last time, but that are uh, flirting with voting for Trump. But they're all, there are these, you know, sort of, you know, infamous Trump-Obama voters, folks who voted for change, folks who voted for the candidate they thought would fight for people like them. And we've got to win enough of them back. We don't have to win all of them back. We probably don't even have to win, you know, 70% of them back. But we've got to make arguments to them that Trump sold you a bill of goods, that he said he was going to fight for people like you, and everything he's done is to help the super wealthy. And, you know, his second term is going to be more of that. It's going to be trying to cut Medicare and Social Security to pay for his tax cuts. So I think we have powerful arguments. But, you know, um, so I'd say in Wisconsin, let's say we do an amazing job of maximizing our suburban vote in areas outside of Madison and Milwaukee. And let's say we do a great job of registering 18 and 19 year olds on college campuses. And let's say we do an amazing job with African-American turnout in Milwaukee. If you don't convert enough Trump Obama voters, you know, Barack Obama got, I think it's close to 250,000 more votes than, than Clinton did in, in exurban, rural and blue collar areas. You got to get some of that back. Because Trump's going to get more votes this time than he got last time because he's going to blow out turnout. So it's really, really important. Uh, and I, I really um, am concerned about this dangerous debate that says you have to choose. We need a nominee in a campaign and a volunteer base that can do all that because there is no easy route to beating Trump. It's not like we can choose one cohort of order, voters. We have to maximize um, our vote share and turnout amongst a whole bunch of different cohorts of voters um, in order to get to a win number in a state like Wisconsin. 2008 was the first presidential election that I voted in. And I remember I mean, the the feeling of, of hope and change and, and words like that, it really felt like more than a trope then. It felt like you know, a real thing. And I think the, the thought of hope almost feels like sort of a luxury now. But are there, are there themes that you recall or that carry through from those elections that can still resonate today? Well, listen, you know, Barack Obama sailed right into the teeth of of a Great Recession that was this close to Great Depression, right? So he ended up having to to engage in a lot of triage, but still got, you know, really remarkable accomplish you know, he you know, the Affordable Care Act, Wall Street reform, um did a you know, did a lot of through executive actions to help, you know, fight climate change and protect our planet. So uh, I think it shows that, you know, and listen, we've got the coronavirus and a potential recession, you know, that we may have to deal with. But I think we have to convince people that, you know, a president always has to deal with the world as it is, but they can still get things done. So, yes, if 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 all the energy is about getting rid of Trump, I don't think we'll win. I think we have to have a nominee and a campaign and all of us who say, you know, there is reason for hope. This is a person that you know, will get us back in the Paris Climate Accords on day one. That gives us a good chance to, to combat climate change. This is a person who will offer executive actions on gun safety and on, you know, child care. This is a person 
who will um, fight uh, as hard as they can to roll back the tax cuts for the wealthy. This is a person who will not divide the country, but try and unite us. This is a person who will embrace every person in this country, no matter their faith or their race or their sexual orientation. That's super important. And so this campaign can't just be about this is the way to get rid of Trump, as important as that is. I think we have to give people something to vote for. And that is ultimately our nominee, but it's on all of us. We have to, you know, again, if we're posting 10 out of 10 things on Facebook or Instagram that are anti-Trump, that's a problem. Like, we've got to be posting some percentage of content that's like, I love what our nominee said on this answer about climate change, or I love this plan for health care, or uh, they've got a great plan to rebuild the rural economy. Like, we have to do that. And so voting against something is very powerful, but it's limiting. So you've got to match that with enough passion around voting for something. Uh, and, you know, I hope it's hope. I hope it's faith, you know, in, in a better tomorrow. I hope it's confidence in this person. Um, I hope it's excitement. I hope it's all those things. But it, it's got to be part of the mix here. I know we're getting close to the end of our time, so I, I want to make sure I just give you a chance to share what what message you would leave to, to people to motivate them uh, to make it through these next few months. Well, I mean, A, we have to win this election. So uh, we have no... <laughs> We have no option because I think uh, the prospect of eight years of Trump is not just doubling of the damage. It's it's a compounding effect that we may not survive. So then then the other message that's on all of us, and I know that can be daunting. I know that can seem harsh, but I think um, this election is about, you know, do we have enough people across America and, and in a state like Wisconsin who are taking responsibility, say, I'm going to do all I can and even more, both kind of officially volunteering for the campaign, but also in my everyday life to, to, to build a winning coalition. Um, and that's your individual effort. When looked at solely through your effort may seem small, but when you think about if you're, if you're registering voters on a Saturday in October and 10,000 other people are in Wisconsin, you know, that could be the margin of victory. If you convince two people not to vote third party on a weekend in October um, and 10,000 other people do, in Wisconsin, that could be the margin of victory. So I think you have to look at your volunteer activity through the aggregate. Um, and the other thing I'd say, I don't have all the ideas in this book. Again, the spirit to me is more important than the specifics, but I hope it spurs some ideas. Uh, I think I'm going to meet people on my book tour that have a lot better ideas than I do. But the main point is you have to take ownership for this. You know, if you're sitting back hoping our candidate runs the perfect campaign, we're probably going to lose. And if you sit back hoping Trump runs a bad campaign, you're probably going to lose. So we all have to take our own degree of, I think, responsibility for the outcome here, far beyond what people even did in 18 and 16. And they did a lot. And I would even argue far beyond what they did for Obama, because ultimately the future of the planet's at stake. And um, and Trump is going to do everything he can legally and illegally <laughs> within bounds and without a bounds to win. I mean, he he is obsessed with re-election. And when you have a president who, you know, has controls of the most powerful levers humankind's ever known, uh, with that level of, of the obsession, that can be quite intimidating. And so he's David and we're all Goliath and we got to find a way to band together uh, and make this happen. So that that's really why I wrote this book. And, you know, I have a, a, a course, you know, a kid's book as well called Ripples of Hope, which is 
that's coming out next week as well, which is really geared at kids who are, you know, sort of 10 to 15, 10 to 16, who don't have a vote, but they have a voice and the role they can play. So I think it's even on, and, you know, ultimately this election is about them, much more about their future than my generation's. Uh, and, you know, I think we have to fight for them, but they also need to get to fight too. Still likes to be, I'm coming home. Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. Our theme music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. We have new episodes out on Fridays, so make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to make sure you stay up to date. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, you can find me on Twitter at Jesse Opie, or you can email me at jopoyan at madison.com. The Cap Times has even more excellent podcasts you should also check out, like The Mad Splainers and The Corner Table. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.